the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, slings, arrows, proud contumely, insolence of office, and a trickle of aside juice. Now available in convenient nano shake for lawyers. Rusky Redux and Blatant Mimesis. Plus, we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have Gorg Huff and Paula Goodlett with us to discuss the latest entry in the Ring of Fire series, 1637 The Volga Rules, by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff. This is one of the Northern Crescent Ring of Fire stories, and it is the follow-up to that really fun Ring of Fire entry, 1636 The Kremlin Games, one of my favorites. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Leaden Universe novel, Alliance of Equals. But first, here's the news. Hey, listen, hear that? It's a radio signal from Saturn calling out to you with the news that we are not alone in the universe. Of course, you already knew that because you've met other people. But aliens can be very airy and philosophical when sending first contact messages. Anyway, also in the message is the news that Les Johnson's new science fiction novel is out at booksellers everywhere. That book is Mission to Methany. The year is 2065. An accidental encounter in space leads to the discovery that we are not alone in the universe and that our continued existence as a species may be in jeopardy. Scientist Chris Holt, working in his office at the Space Resources Corporation, discovers that one of the asteroids he is surveying for mining is actually not an asteroid at all, but a derelict spaceship. The word gets out, and soon the world's powers are competing to explore and claim for themselves the secrets that it holds. What they don't know is that across the galaxy, a war has been underway for millennia, a war between alien civilizations that have very different ideas about what should be done about emerging spacefaring civilizations like our own. The artificial intelligence resident in the derelict, Holt discovered, has been in our solar system since before the dawn of human civilization, waiting, watching, and keeping quiet lest the interstellar war return and wipe out the sentient race that now resides on our planet, that is, us, humanity. And that war might soon be again coming to our front door. The truth can only be discovered on Methany, a tiny egg-shaped moon of the planet Saturn. Who will get there first, and will it be in time? Mission to Methany by Les Johnson is now available at booksellers everywhere. This is part one of a two-part interview with... Gorg Huff and Paula Goodlett talking about 1637, The Volga Rules by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff. want to welcome Paula Goodlett and Gorg Huff to the podcast. Hello, folks. Hi. Hello. Paula Goodlett is the editor emeritus now of the Grantville Gazette. She's moved on to, uh, to a far more exciting life. Um, 
Yeah, but she's highly involved with Eric Flint's Ring of Fire series, always has been, um, since it's an inception of the uh, the 1632 community and such at 1632.org. She and her husband currently live in Florida, enjoying the lack of snow, although I hear they had a cold snap. Gorg Huff is a Texas citizen who has now moved to uh, the, the cold north of the Midwest, who has enthusiastically helped in researching the Ring of Fire series background, written numerous stories for the Grantville Gazettes, and contributed both maps and drawings to 1634, The Bavarian Crisis. With Eric Flint and Paula Goodlett, he is the author of uh, The Alexander Inheritance, a really cool uh, sort of uh, Ring of Fire, perhaps, offshoot, and Ring of Fire series entries 1636, The Viennese Waltz, and 1636, The Kremlin Games. Out now, booksellers everywhere, is... 1637, The Volga Rules. Let's set the stage. As the book's, book opens, what are these peasants of Rusuka up to? What's going on here? How, can you sort of set the stage from the Kremlin Games of where we are here? Yeah. The Kremlin Games introduced the technology was introduced by the Ring of Fire to Russia. And it was a gradual process that is seeping out to the rest of Russia. But the results are not always positive. Before we go any farther, we should, for those who don't know, uh, the uh, Ring of Fire books are about a town from West Virginia from about the year 2000, got thrown back in time and out of place into the middle of... um, what will be Germany in the middle of the continental Europe in 1632. And now uh, we are at 1637. The world is, uh, that world is reacting to the fact that, that these people from the future have shown up. So uh, this guy, Bernie, Bernie Zeppi, he's gone up to Russia. He's, he's a, from our time, which means an uptimer, they call them. Um, and that was what, that was, a lot of what set off the Kremlin games. All right, sorry, can, let's get back now to, to what you were saying, Gorg. I'm sorry. Bernie Zeppi, as you point out, uh, goes to Russia, and he starts t- acting as sort of a walking translation device uh, for the Russian scholars who are studying, trying to learn from the uptime books and uptime knowledge. They get shipped copies of books, not translations. And then they use Bernie sort of as an on, uh, a living reference to what uptime language means. And over the course of the years, being, he gets sort of stuck in the situation of being the only student in a university full of professors, all of whom are constantly asking him questions that he has to look up the answers to and try and figure out what what, uh, what it is. So it's sort of an education for Bernie. In the meantime, the Dacha, which is this university that Bernie's the student at, is pouring into Russia techniques to do everything from paper money to flying machines, specifically dirigibles, to uh, drop presses and electroplating and all the other stuff that the Ring of Fire is introducing much more rapidly into the rest of Europe. And then... At the beginning, we get the Volga Rules. In Volga Rules, we learn first 
at the outset that sometimes just the advancement of technology doesn't make everything all hunky-dory. Sometimes people simply move from one form of serfdom to another. And that is what has happened to the poor people of Rizuka. Paula, you want to chime in? Social circumstances. You know, uh, the serfs were expected to do what essentially their owners told them to do, or their overlords. And there are going to be overlords who go, oh, right, you know, people can get some rest now. And then there's going to be other people that says, oh, why? right, they can work 18 hours a day now. So <laughs> the, the serfs of Ruzuka got the second sort of guy. So um, tell us about an, an instance of, of what's going on with, with Stefan and Vera, for instance. Stefan is the chief blacksmith of Ruzuka. He is a skilled craftsman in the craft of the 17th of 17th century Russia, which means basically this is the guy who goes out, digs in the ground, gets iron ore, turns the iron ore into pig iron, turns the pig iron into tools for the village of Razuka. He is this is a pretty prominent position. But with the Ring of Fire, he and a whole bunch of his fellows have been shipped off to another town to work basically in a manufacturing plant for no pay. And while they're doing that, they can't get ready for spring planting. They can't do all the things that they need to do in the winter to be ready for the spring planting, and they're not happy about it. So Stefan who is very not happy about it and worried about his wife and kids and worried about the possibility of them starving before the harvest comes in, is thinking of running away. And running away was already a problem for the Russians. For the Russians, the whole Cossack nation came from Russian serfs running away. The Russians uh, were pretty vicious about the whole... Uh, escaping surf business. The knowledge of the the knowledge that Bernie has brought from the Ring of Fire has opened up people's eyes, and there are pamphlets running around. And even though most people in Russia can't read, there's a sprinkling of those who can. The ideas of freedom and liberty are seeping into this very slavery-oriented country. And Stefan doesn't like he's all his training has been to to keep his head down but he's come to the conclusion that keeping his head down won't keep his family alive so he's getting ready to run and then he realizes that he's not the only one who's upset gets recruited by the local it says we're at the very beginning of the book and in part of the book that gets talked about in the in the dust jacket. The whole village pulls up stakes, basically, and decides they're going to go. Along with um, a couple of the aristocrats from the area who are um, who are the women. Yeah, they're spe- specifically, they're the owners of the, they're the ladies who are the women folk of the family that owns the village, that has the village in fiefs from the czar. Yeah. Now, how can you briefly tell us about how the 
the aristocracy of Russia works. One of y'all, um, I, I keep hearing different words in the book, like, for instance, service noble, nobility. What does that mean, and et cetera? Basically, there were two, two real two types of nobility in uh, Russia since Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible really introduced a brand new kind of, ro- of nobility a couple of generations before this. Uh, he basically uh, introduced service nobility that were raised up by the government and employed by the government. And uh, these are the bureaucrats and the soldiers and uh, the people who basically run the government. And about one in every 300 people in Russia is a member of the service nobility. So it's actually a fairly small nobility. Then there are the Streltsy. The Streltsy are roughly the equivalent of the uh, Esquires of England in this period. They're not noble, but they're not peasants either. They've got a a separate status, and they make up the merchant class and the craftsman class. If you're a goldsmith, you're streltsy. If you're a a trader, you're you're streltsy. But if you're a bureaucrat or a soldier, the streltsy also act as uh, foot soldiers and, uh, and city guards. But they're generally, but even when they do act as soldiers are generally commanded by a member of the service nobility. And the service and then above the service nobility are the boyars or the Duma class nobility. Most of these have service nobility backgrounds and uh, blooded nobility black backgrounds. They're sort of a combination of the two. And the rush most nobility turns out to be really complicated when you get into it, and Russia's a little bit more than most. What is uh, Isabella and her mother? Where would they fit in? They're service nobility. They're both members of the service nobility. Uh, Middle-level service nobility, about the equivalent of a count or a baron. Uh, But their husbands have jobs in the government, and they get paid for those jobs in the form of land, which is granted to the family by the, by the government as their payment. So basically their pay is this land and the serfs that are on it. So if the serfs start running away, it's like their government salaries are taking a hike. Hmm. So the all right. So the village pulls up stakes, and um, and they are running toward the czar. Now, why is that? What's going on in the greater political picture um, with the government in Russia as we begin the book? Mikhail um, is has left Moscow. Where's he? Where's he going? What's going on? At the end of Kremlin Games, Mikhail escaped from Shermetev and from the house prison that Shermetev had put him in, he escapes and runs east. He doesn't want to run west because if he leaves Russia, he loses his moral authority, if you like. But if he goes east, he stays in Russia. So he keeps going east and upriver to 
get out of Shermatev's reach and try and set up a government in exile. And on his way out, he says, anybody, any serf who comes to me in the East, I will give their freedom. I will release them from their bounds to the land. And that's why, that's part of the reason that this village is ru- is up and running, because Tsar, Tsar Mikhail, more influenced than most of his nobles by Grantville and the Ring of Fire, and especially by Bernie Zeppi, he has decided that for the long-term good of Russia, and oddly enough, Mikhail, even in our world, he wasn't a particularly strong character. He was probably a noble one. And uh, we certainly wrote him as a noble one. He has determined that in the best interest of Russia, in the long term, the institution of serfdom, the institutions of serfdom and chattel slavery, slavery has to go. Mm-hmm. Basically, he's a reformist czar. Yeah, so that's why they're... And he's promised uh, at some point land to serfs the, the, to people that come to him. Yeah, he's promised them land and liberty. Yeah. 40 acres and a mule. <laughs> and that's something that he actually, they've sort of worked out because Bertie said something about that to them. Yeah, the whole yeah, 40 Bertie acres. Yeah, probably that... didn't have it right, but it was him probably, <laughs> quite probably, that said something about it. They have made it, they make it to uh, this town of Ufa, I guess that's the way to say it. Um, They need to get themselves uh, uh, through the winter, and and to do that, they need to preserve a river uh, passage to get get the supplies they need, right? Right. Ufa is a hunter-gatherer part of the world at this point in time. They don't have a lot of farms handy. So they need the river to transfer food in to support the the very the growing population of escaped serfs and uh, those members of the Strelsi and the and the service nobility and even a few of the inherited nobility that come and join Mikhail and start this new to try and start a new nation conceived in liberty in the eastern part of Russia. Mm-hmm. So they have to establish something like some sort of Vicksburg uh, choke point kind of place that they can um, they can control the river by, right? So who uh, right? Uh, what's what's going on with those four? Who are those people that are that that Mikhail's calling on to to do that? Do you remember his actual official name, Paula General Tim uh, Timovich Andreevich? Something. I, I'm sorry, the, the names do get a bit confusing. Uh, yeah. He Not was in the Kremlin Games, he, you know, a good kid, but he's very young. Yeah, he's a good kid and very young. At the beginning, of, or at the end of the last book, and at the beginning of this one, Zor Mikhail didn't have anything to give this good kid. He didn't have guns, he didn't have soldiers, he didn't have much of anything to give Tim but a title. So it gives him the best title he can, makes this, like, 20-year-old kid a full general. 
and says, come to me in Ufa, and Tim manages it. Partly that's because Tim's a pretty bright kid. Partly it's because warfare has changed drastically, and he is young enough to not be tied into how the Russians did it. And the Russians were actually behind the rest of Europe in how they did it. And there was a faction in the Russian military that wanted to go copy the rest of Europe. And then there was, but when you add in the uptimers, the technology, the military technology, the understanding of tactics and strategy and uh, mobility of warfare versus trench warfare and fixed positions, it's a lot more complicated, and Tim grew up with, militarily, Tim grew up with this new set of rules, and so he's actually better at it than some of the more professional generals who are trained to the last war. Uh, He does a really good job, and he gets to Kazan at which point he's not in a position to take the city. So he sends Ivan in to persuade the city to join the Tsar. This is a combination, this book is a combination of military and political options and keeping everything on the table so that they can act in different ways. Whereas Shermatev has a tendency to want to suppress. And that's that's Shermatev's strength, but it's also his biggest weakness because he doesn't really trust his own people. Ivanovich, uh, Fedor Ivanovich Shermatev is our bad guy who's sort of the... Who is lined up on his side? What are the stakes for for those? Why are they against the czar? What's going on there? The, the reason they're against the Tsar is because they've always been against the Tsar. Tsar uh, Mikhail was czar. Chosen, mm-hmm. chosen to be the weakest possible Tsar. And for pretty much his entire reign in our history, he was ruled by his mother, by his father, or by the Duma. And the Duma is this collection of, of very high nobles who are not officially in charge of everything, but they run the bureaus. They were okay with the czar as long as the czar stayed in his palace and didn't actually do anything. Uh, when the czar actually took an interest in government, that's when Sherman ever arrested him. And when he escaped... All of a sudden, their hold on power, their legitimacy, was taken away and went off to Ufa to be followed by a bunch of the serfs who were running the thing. So they're trying to get everything back in the bottle so that they can retain control of Russia because they're all about controlling Russia and keeping keeping the lid on so that they can ch- remain in charge. Yeah. Now, who are the, this this river, by the way, that Kazan is on, and that's the Volga, right? Yeah, uh, well, it's a 
tributary of the Volga. Russia really is the Volga militarily, and we touched on that in Kremlin games. But he who who owns the Volga owns Russia to a great extent, at least a part of Russia that was at least moderately populated at this time. Hmm. Uh, the Far East, what is, is Siberia and Kazakhs and all the rest of it, really was basically wild engine territory. Even UFAs on the uh, borderline of wild engine territory. Um, think of it as, uh, I can't remember the name of the town that was, I think, on the Mississippi that was the jump-off point for uh, the Oregon Trail. UFA's about there. It's basically right on the edge of civilization and maybe a little off past the edge. And um, when Tsar Mikhail goes out there, part of the reason that he goes all the way to UFA is to try and get himself far enough so that he can't be quickly captured, that it's going to take a major, the raising of a major army to go get him. Who are the uptimers that are in Russia right now? They're for the most part they're on uh, on the Czar's side, right? Bernie's there. Who else is? There? Uh, exclusively, they're on the Czar's side. They all go with the Czar, Bernie, and then there's the family of the nurse. And Paul, I can't remember her name. Uh, Amy Simmons and her husband and their children. Right. Uh, and her husband gets tagged as an ambassador for um, Zar Mikhail, and uh, Tammy becomes basically the Dr. Nichols, for those of you who have read the 1632 uh, series, Tammy gets to be the Dr. Nichols of Russia. She is essentially the most skilled medical practitioner within a thousand miles in any direction. And that's a thousand miles in the 17th century, a really long way. Let's talk about a little about, about the state of Russia. And the, at this point, Bernie's been around a while. The technological state of Russia is is quite a bit different than when he arrived. Um, how? What have they done? How has it gotten there? Um, I mean, the Tsar arrives on a dirigible, right? Yeah. Uh, they... they the dacha is basically, they did it essentially the same way the Russians did it at, uh, after World War II. They did it with the dacha, which was essentially a star city. Uh, the Russian space program happened in our, uh, when they, they basically took and they built a specific city, brought in engineers, and did their space program by simply pour, throwing money at the prob at the problem, essentially a little bit less repressively, they did the same thing in uh, during Kremlin games, and they did it at a place called the Dacha, which was a country house or country estate owned by uh, Natasha and Vladimir, and. 
that they turned into this combination university and research center. They shipped in books from Grantville. They brought in experts, Russia, the most skilled people in Russia, pretty much the best and the brightest that Russia had to offer, put them all in one place and said, go do it. And they did. And one of the interesting things, one of the subtle effects that Bernie had, simply because of the kind of guy that Bernie was, and because he grew up in a modern world with notions of freedom of speech and academic liberty, was he turned the dacha into a place where ideas were shared rather than hidden. And the dacha became this uh, combination of Caltech and, and and Berkeley, which is often, which is to a great extent, what Grantville became uh, for the rest of Europe. That was part one of a two-part interview with Paula Goodlett and Gorkhoff talking about 1637 The Volga Rules by Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorkhoff. Part two will be available next time on the podcast. This is another entry in Alliance of Equals, a Leiden Universe novel by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. Beset by the angry remnants of the Department of the Interior, and challenged at every turn by opportunists on their new homeworld of Sherbleek, and low on funds, Clan Corville desperately needs to reestablish its position as one of the top trading clans in known space. To this end, master trader Sean Yosgalen and Corville's premier trade ship Dutiful Passage is on a mission to establish new business associations and to build a strong primary route that links well with existing loops and secondary routes. But re-establishing trade and preserving the lives of the few remaining members of the clan aren't all of Corville's problem. Matters come to a head as Dutiful Passage, accustomed to being welcomed and feeded at those ports on its call list, finds itself denied docking and blacklisting while agents of the DOI mounted armed attacks on others of Corville's traders under the very eyes of port security systems. Traveling with dutiful trader on this unsettling journey is Patty O'Scalen, the master trader's heir and his apprentice. Patty is eager to make up for time lost due to Corville's unpleasantness with the Department of the Interior, but she is also keeping a secret so intense that her coming of age, and perhaps her very life, is threatened by it. And here is the latest entry in Sharon Lee and Steve Miller's Alliance of Equals. Chapter 23 Jemmy Atha's Jumble Stop Terrigan, Birth 12 Admiral Bunter left dock during her sleep shift, Hasenthal leaned over the board, checking Terrigan's departure in six hours after Ahab Azaeus in two. There was a memo in her queue from pilot Tokel. Approval of the course she had laid in before going off duty. There was no further comment. There was no need for comment, the course being simple a mere reversal of the route that had brought them here until they raised the planet Surebleek. 
home, as those of Clan Corval now had it. Of Pilot Tokol herself, there was no sign. She was, perhaps, saying her goodbyes to Inky. Pilot Tokel had become friendly of Inky. They held, so Hazenthal understood, interests in common, among them the history of so-called artificial intelligence. She had found Tolly in the galley during one of his off shifts and had asked him why Pilot Tokel's intelligence and Admiral Bunter's bore the burden of artificiality when they were demonstrably intelligent as well as much quicker of thought than flesh-and-blood persons. Inky, who heard the question on her way through the galley to her shift with Admiral Bunter, laughed and said, It is human ego Pilot has, and nothing more than that. Well, Tolly had said with a small smile, something more than that, actually. See, has... Some folks think that because Admiral Bunter and Tokel and all the rest of their people have had information uploaded to their brains, that their intelligence is less real than any given human's intelligence. The idea is that they didn't have to work for that information, to learn it like an organic brain has to learn it. But information... Hazenthal had objected when Tolly stopped to sip from his mug of might. Is only data. Intelligence is manipulating data and drawing conclusions. Right, you know that because you're smart and you think about things. Same can't be said for most of the rest of us who keep on believing that something that's manufactured is artificial. He had suddenly looked very weary, and Hazenthal had excused herself so that he could finish his meal in peace and seek his few hours of rest. On Terrigan's bridge, Hazenthal stretched to her full height and did a series of quick bends to ease the crick in her back. The silence oppressed her. She glanced at the time display on the board and nodded, she would take a walk, a farewell walk, about Jemiatha Station. Perhaps she would, no, definitely, she would stop at the Jumble House and have a last Jumble Burger for her pre-flight meal. She had become very fond of the Jumble Burger, which was a chewy yeast patty seasoned with sweet hot spices, a slice of soy cheese on top and bottom, and the whole served between two slices of fresh-baked bread. Even in the short while they had been at dock, Pilot Tokel had become a commonplace on Jemiatha Station. Whether the stationers knew her for Admiral Bunter's kin, or simply accepted her as the utility bot, Tolly had claimed her to be seemed immaterial. Tokel was known and accepted, and therefore would experience no difficulty returning alone along the dock to Terrigan from Ahab Isaias. And if some fool was so unwise as to attempt to importune her, well, Pilot Tokel was well able to take care of herself. Hazenthal clipped a portable comm to her belt, checked her weapons, all but one hidden, 
out of respect for stationer nerves, and left Terrigan's too quiet deck. Mentor, Inky's voice filled the bridge. Tolly sat in the pilot's chair, arms folded over his chest, head against the backrest, eyes closed. Mentor, it has been an honor to assist you in the performance of our art. It grieves me beyond my poor ability to express that I must serve you this turn. I hope that you will find it in you to forgive me, or at least to understand me. I flatter myself, in fact, that you will understand me, for I am one like unto yourself. That being so, and having discovered you, I had no other option but to put forth my best efforts to secure you for the Institute. The directors are, as I am certain you must be aware, keen to recover you. I could not refuse my imperatives. I do not, of course, have to explain this to you. This is why you wake to find yourself aboard Admiral Bunter on course to Nostrilia. There was a small pause. Then Inky cleared her throat. Having fulfilled my duty to the directors, I then undertook to do what I might for you. You have an ally at large. I trust that her loyalty is such that she will not allow you to fall into the hands of the directors. I also trust that she is your hope of last resort. For it is not for nothing, Tollens Barrick Jones, that you are known as the greatest mentor of our time. Admiral Bunter remains in need of further education, I trust. No, in this I am certain, that you will be able to impart to him all of those things he yet requires in order to make an informed decision before you come to Nostrilia orbit. Another pause then Inky's voice again, somewhat less brisk, even regretful. I bid you goodbye, mentor. I have learned much at your side. Thank you for the gift of your expertise and for your professional regard. I will long look upon our association and the work we performed together as one of the brightest episodes of my life. Message ends, a mechanical voice stated. Tolly reached to the board and after a moment saved the message to his cue. Then he took a deep breath. Inky was one of his schoolmates, was she? He felt that he ought to have known that, but how would he know? They were designed to pass as full human, and those employed by the Institute were discouraged from revealing themselves. Especially were they discouraged from revealing themselves to truants the directors were keen to recover. And how interesting that Inky was apparently able to hedge her bet and provide him with an ally? He suddenly sat up straight in the chair. An ally? Has. Inky'd gotten has mixed into liar business. That wasn't good. In fact, it was bad, really bad. Has had killed two directors, 
which the remainder weren't at all likely to be forgiving of, and he wouldn't be there to back her up. Admiral Bunter, it's imperative that I speak to Terrigan. I am sorry, Tolly. I cannot allow that. He opened his mouth and closed it again. Inky did good work. There was no use arguing with the Admiral and no reset possible. If he was a fool, he could check his codes. But he wasn't a fool and neither was Inky. Of course, she'd have locked him out at the control level. Which left him with goodwill, trust, and his powers of persuasion. Well, I'm sorry for that, he said. And it's likely to make trouble for Haz, who didn't ever make any trouble for you, but rules are rules. I do understand that. Any chance I can take a look at the current route? There was a tiny pause, as if he'd managed to startle the lad, which he surely hoped he had. Of course the pilot may see the route, Admiral Bunter said politely. I remind that it is locked in. Sure it is, Tolly said softly. His screen four came live, showing the countdown to the jump point and the course as laid in thereafter. Ahab Isaias left dock as she was finishing her meal. She watched the undocking on the large screen that dominated the back wall of the jumble house. She already knew Inky for a competent pilot. And she watched with interest as Ahab Isaias backed away from station, rolled, and tumbled into her assigned lane, moving at sublight for the jump point. Hazenthal ate the last bite of her jumble burger, wiped away the tears the spices had brought to her eyes, and downed what was left of her tea in one gulp. She stood, carried plate, cup, and utensils to the recycling station, deposited them, and exited into a crowded station corridor. She'd barely made the first cross corridor when the calm on her belt chimed in Pilot Tokol's sequence. Hazenthal snatched the unit to her ear. Yes, Pilot? Ah, Pilot has. How quick you are, cried a familiar voice that was nonetheless not Pilot Tokol. It is Inky Rani Yo, aboard Ahab Azaeus. I am contacting you with a change of plans. Pilot Tokol is traveling with me. She and I are bound to track down a rumor that exercises a strong fascination over both of us. When our curiosity is satisfied, she will return to her home port. Hey, watch it there, big girl, a stationer snapped, slapping Hazenthal's elbow aside. She spun and ducked into a small service alcove. The pilot is with you? She asked, scarcely able to credit it. She is, yes. I would speak with her. I am sorry, she is unable to come to calm at the moment. But, pilot has, that is not all the news I have for you. Her chest was tight. There was something very wrong. The pilot was meticulous. She had left the proposed course in Hazenthal's queue. If she had intended to travel with Inky, 
Would she not have left that information as well? Such sudden starts were not like her. And now she was unavailable? You are very quiet, Inky said in her ear. Do you not care for further news? What further news, she demanded, running times in her head, weighing her honor with Jemiatha's station against Pilot Tokol's liberty. I fear that mentor Beric Jones has run into a spot of trouble with Admiral Bunter. There is a course laid in to someplace, let us say, that the mentor would prefer not to go, and the admiral under compulsion to take him there. I mention this because your loyalty may be such that you feel impelled to take this matter under your correction. This is you? You did this. I fear so, Pilot has. I hope that you will forgive me, but I do not think you will. Where are they going? No, no, Pilot has. I've already told you more than I ought. If I hint you further along, I will do myself a mischief which the directors would hardly care for. I am expensive, I am, just like mentor Beric Jones. Inky, Hasenthal began, though she hardly knew what she would say or ask for. The return of Pilot Tokel, the recall of Admiral Bunter. Inky, she said again, and it seemed the question formed itself. Why have you done this? There was a slight pause, just too long for lag, before Inky said softly, Necessity. Hasenthal swallowed, took a breath for another question, and the calm went dead. Patty couldn't quite remember when the room had gotten crowded. For the longest time, it had been only herself, father, Mr. Higgs, and Unette Hartensis, even after the doors had been opened. Then, a pair of merchants had appeared, wearing skirts down to their ankles and wide belts, all hung round with pouches at their waists and brightly colored, wide-collared shirts. Father had gone forward to greet them, and Patty had started in that direction also, which was good because another pair of traders came in behind the first and paused on the threshold as if unsure. Paddy kept going, past father and his pair to the new ones, bowing and remembering to smile broadly. Good day to you, she said in trade. I am Paddy Yosgalen, apprentice trader on Dutiful Passage. Whom do I have the pleasure of welcoming to our entertainment? Introductions came forth. The trader in the pale orange shirt was Malachi Jerome, senior sales associate at Jerome Mercantile. The trader wearing the brilliant green shirt was Urfenda Dorst, head buyer for the same establishment. Their trade was good, but their accents so heavy that Paddy had to concentrate intently to be certain of their words. I am very pleased to meet you, she said, and stood a little to the side, showing them the laden tables with a little wave of her hand. Please, refresh yourselves. 
They smiled and nodded and moved past her. Father, she saw, was now speaking with a threesome, all dressed in dark skirts and crimson shirts. And just as she looked back toward the door, here came a lone trader, splendid in lemon yellow from shoulder to ankle. She stepped forward to greet this new guest. So indeed, the room had filled by ones and twos and threes. The guests refreshed themselves and moved about the room, perusing their small trade displays and taking up the master trader's info key and a few of them, also the apprentice's key. Most of them wanted to speak to father, of course, but more than six made a particular point of approaching her and speaking with her about her particular cargoes and specialties. Her ears slowly became accustomed to the accent, though she began to feel a tiny ache behind her eyes, as if she had been staring at a study screen too long. They were not so very much interested in imported foodstuffs, but wondered after the markets, off-world, for certain preserved items and dried natural fruits and vegetables. There was also something, a beverage, as she gathered it, not tea, perhaps more akin to coffee, but not coffee either. Unla, as she heard the word, and detected disappointment that there was none on offer among the refreshments. Ah, but ye'll not be knowing it for a staple, with coming from far away, said sales associate Jerome. Prentice trader might not know, but Jan Hartensis true knows. His companion of the bright green shirt, Bayer Dorst, said hotly, A spread of all that's fine from Langlast farms and harvests, and none of Unla. I am sorry to have missed a favorite beverage, Paddy said, her head throbbing now. Perhaps I might send out and repair the error. Who may provide us on the port? Non, non, came a new voice, this one deep and belonging to one Hurst Plichette, a textile broker. Don't let these two sorry trickers pull in your leg, trader. Unla's one of our usual drinks, make no mind of that. But to name it Langlast Fine along of the wines and the juices and the fine breads you've laid for us. That's a joke, that is. And shame on the pair of you for it. The trader here spared a thought for our comfort, and Unet laid out fresher and fresh to pleasure us, like she never fails to do. Would you rather that fella off from Zorba Zen, who offered us crackers and beer? That was apparently not a happy memory. Paddy felt derision and irritation in equal measure, and Dorst of the green shirt made a stiff little bow by bending at a 45-degree angle from the waist while looking up into her face. Is like Hurst has it, traitor, a joke, only a joke. Is a fine treat you've made for us, you and Unet too. And it's so, Malachi. Completely so, 
said Signor Jerome, bowing in his turn. He and his associate then moved off in the direction of the wine table. Patty sighed surreptitiously, the ache in her head easing just a little, and flaring again as the textile broker spoke. I read the packet, Butcher Ship, Trader, and the hard choices that come to and was answered by your family that owns it. I wonder, having moved house likes been done, how stable is your base new? Speaking for myself, I value long-term partners in trade. It'd upset me no end to just be settling in to a long arrangement and learn that finances have foundered on Fortune's rocks and our associations sundered. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Alliance of Equals by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a muddy Mississippi full of repurposed milk jugs containing Get Out of Paradox's free elixir. Plus, thanks praise and the tinkles of little star animals come to snack on human misgivings and feelings of vulnerability. Yum! For Paula Goodlett and Gorg Huff, co-authors with Eric Flint of 1637 The Volga Rules. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy and keep reaching for the stars 